Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Body Wrappers, Angela Luzio is delighted to sponsor this episode of Conversations on Dance. Body Wrappers, Angela Luzio is known for its fine, total stretch tights and Angela Luzio shoes. Tyler Peck, principal dancer with New York City Ballet, is its spokesperson and designer of Tyler Peck Designs for Premiere. Tyler's beautiful, original designs fit perfectly, move well with the body, won't ride up in the back, and are ideal for class, rehearsal, and performance. Body Wrappers makes additional apparel for all disciplines and significant to dance teachers this time of year. Body Wrappers Performance Wear Remix for competition and recital, consisting of various components that can be mixed and matched to create a unique costume you won't see anywhere else, like the one featured in Body Wrappers ad. You may view all the products at bodywrappers.com or to purchase Body Wrappers performance wear remix items, go to your favorite local dance retailer shop or online store. To view and buy the entire collection of Tyler Peck designs, go to dancewearcorner.com. I'm Rebecca King-Ferraro. And I'm Michael Breeden. And you're listening to Conversations on Dance. On this week's podcast, our guest is Shelby Williams, dancer at the Royal Ballet of Flanders and creator of internet sensation Biscuit Ballerina. Shelby began her career with Houston Ballet 2 before shortly moving on to several major companies in Europe. In addition to the Royal Ballet of Flanders, she has danced with Dresden Ballet, Barcelona Ballet, and Ballet de Europe. Shelby created an alternate Instagram personality, Biscuit Ballerina, a hysterical parody starring a technically deficient and bafflingly confident dancer butchering her way through the classical canon. While the videos are riotously funny, they are also Shelby's commentary on how perfection-obsessed ballet dancers can be. Today we talk to Shelby about her own dance career, how Biscuit Ballerina was born, and what she hopes followers of this persona can take away from the account. Thank you so much, uh, Shelby, for joining us today from so far away, but it feels like you're right here with us, so we appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Shelby, could you just start out by telling us um, how you got your start in dance? Um, I started at a very young age, like many people do. It was kind of what all other little girls were doing. So my mother put me in dance classes um, when I was about three. 
And, uh, but when I was five, I, I quit because I told my mother they made me stretch too much <laughs> because I'm really not naturally flexible at all. And then like five-year-old logic, I thought, oh, I don't want to be a dancer. I want to be a gymnast instead. And I quit that after two classes as well, because they also made me stretch. And I just, <laughs> I, I was in pain and I wasn't enjoying it. And I was like, why is this supposed to be fun? And then a couple of years later, I started again, just because other girls in my class were, were going to dance classes and I went to hang out with my friends. And so that's how I started dance. But I, I definitely did not go to any kind of competition school or very serious ballet school at the beginning. Um, I went to a studio that was run by two sisters um, uh, that one taught tap class and one taught ballet class. And I had one hour of ballet a week and one hour of tap a week <laughs> until I was about 11. Wow. Um, yeah. And then I, all my friends were doing this ballet summer performance uh that was put on by a local ballet studio. It was kind of the only ballet-oriented school in my hometown of Baton Rouge. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I wanted to join in with my friends. Until then, I was also doing a lot of basketball. So kind of, I was actually really bored by ballet. Wow, yeah. Um, and then I went and did this audition, and I was just so in over my head. I took class with this school and I had never actually left the bar in ballet, which is why I, oh I hated ballet. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what a glissade was. And I still, to this day, remember the panicked feeling of seeing people doing assemblés and not knowing what an assemblé was. Oh no! And oh. it just being like, what, what is this? And then they, they took me because they, they needed a lot of kids for the production. And then it was just, it was so challenging and ballet was so much more than I thought it was that I got really hooked. And then after that, I, I started going to this ballet school all the time until, you know, summer intensives came into the picture. And from there, you know, mm -hmm. like everyone, you start looking at, okay, where can I study full time and how can I make this a career? That's so, wow. That's so great. A wonderful story. How do you feel that, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about, um, some of your time as a, a student, but how did that challenge you trying to kind of catch up um, at a later age when you got to a point that you were in Houston um, doing a professional um, ballet school at Houston Ballet? Um, it definitely motivated me. I um, Luckily, I think I have the type of personality that when I feel like an underdog, I don't give up or I don't, um, I don't get offended by it. I just find it as a challenge. So it already started from when, you know, I went to this local ballet school much later and the, the, the many of the girls in the school were very nice, but at the same time, there's always kind of mean girls in ballet. <laughs> and I remember when I was 12, 11 and 12, I was really behind and there were the girls in the class who were really gifted mm -hmm. and they wanted nothing to do with me. And then I, I got really into learning everything about ballet and I improved fairly quickly. And then the school ended up moving me up kind of halfway through the year and, and then putting me on point also halfway through the year. And I remember my first point class as well, because everyone else had been doing bar for six months and then they got to go to the center. And my first point class, I was doing pirouettes from fifth in the center because I joined halfway through the year. And I was just like, well, go with it. Okay, <laughs> Every, everyone's doing it. Just do it. So I kind of had this feeling of 
just just do what you can and just keep up and it it because some of the girls who were really gifted were kind of mean to me at the beginning I didn't luckily I I wasn't gifted myself so I didn't fall into that group of people who were really judgy or you know because I was really bad I was really <laughs> bad so I couldn't be judgy and <laughs> and then I also learned a lot about um character and how much it can affect people around you you know don't don't be arrogant just because you're gifted or talented or or whatever because I had there were girls even older than the ones who are in my age category who were mean to me who were always nice to me um and that really made an impact on me that from then I was like well if just because someone's not as good as me or younger than me doesn't mean that I have to put them in their place or anything. Right. Yeah. So, so you, uh, you were dancing, uh, in Houston. Um, but after a short period of time, you began to explore options in Europe. And, um, what, what brought that up? Why did you see yourself, um, dancing outside of the country? Um, well, I was in first in the school in Houston and then I was in the second company mm -hmm. and in Houston, there's this uh, dance festival every year called Dance Salad, and it hosts pretty much only international companies. I think the two years that I saw it, there were absolutely no North American companies involved in it. It was only companies from Asia or Europe. And so that was a blessing that, you know, in the middle of Texas, Houston Ballet is, is, is a great ballet company, but you're still you know, in the middle of the South, it's not New York City or Los Angeles or um, um, a major culture hub, I would say, right. where you might get all these European influences. But we had dance salad every season. And I remember seeing uh, Carte Blanche, the like National Contemporary Company of Norway, do this piece by Hoffa Schechter called Uprising. And it was just so different than anything I'd seen before and really powerful. And I had, you know, tickets that were provided for the students and, and company members from Houston. That was like first row, kind of the seats that are too close that no one wants. <laughs> and so they, they give them away. And for a piece that it had really intense lighting and really loud music, and it was just so overwhelming. And I was like, I want to do that. I haven't, I haven't seen that here. I want to do something like that. And like this year, for the first time, I'm I'm doing a piece by Hoffa Schechter, and it's just like oh, wow. this is what I wanted. I wanted I wanted these experiences that n no companies in the U.S. are doing Hoffa Schechter mm -hmm. or like Cedar Lake did, but it's it's so far and few. So that kind of sparked my interest was the variety that I found in general, um, the variety of choreographers that U.S. companies presented tended to be all within American taste where it seemed like in Europe every country had its own taste of course but even within the countries each company had its own identity a little bit different than in the U.S. In the U.S. every company of course still has its identity but there's this whole nationwide taste that I think applies more to the US than Europe. I totally agree with that. I we've talked about this a little bit, I think on the podcast um about how things have become sort of homogenized even if you um go back to say the 80s, 
ABT, New York City Ballet, and the Joffrey all performing in New York um, did very different repertoire. And now, of course, the Joffrey Ballet is no longer in New York, but things have started to really bleed across the boundaries, right? Like you have yeah. ABT does a lot more balancing. City Ballet now has weeks long, week long um, showings of Romeo and Juliet or Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, etc. So I, I kind of miss that you know the the individuality so i think yeah you're right there that people i feel like in europe you tend to have more of your home choreographers at, within each company and it becomes yeah. less of like here's a, a peck a retmansky and a wielden and yeah. a healthy <laughs> serving of balancing I, I was about to like say retmansky or, or peck or you know also like wayne mcgregor it was a big thing like oh wayne mcgregor he's coming from europe but now so many companies in north america are doing wayne mcgregor it's it's a, I, I, f- I feel like a lot of it is also tied to, um, obviously the financial differences of companies financed in Europe versus right. companies financed in the U.S., where it mostly comes from private or corporate, corporate donations, uh, where in Europe, I remember my, my first year I was an apprentice in Dresden and people talking about budgeting for, for some proper ballet mm-hmm. and saying, you know, something about, Oh yeah, they have the budget for the next five years of what productions they're gonna do, but then after that, it's not sure. And just thinking like five years in advance, and I was like, right. what happens if the economy crashes? And they're like, well, if the economy crashes, the government's still committed. They, you know, they put out a budget. This is what they're giving to the ballet. Right. And I was like, wow, this is stability like I never knew in the arts. And so companies here can also take more risk, mm-hmm. and a lot of directors luckily do. Um, go ahead and take that risk. Of course, you still, you know, you don't want to lose your audience by pushing things too far too quickly that they just can't relate and they stop coming and they don't grow with your company. Mm-hmm. But um, I think not having to, you know, do the Nutcracker every year because you know people will come, you know, that's a steady source of income or not having to always base your artistic decisions on um, will my audience appreciate this completely or will it just puzzle them a little bit i think in europe they're willing to 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 push those buttons a little bit more and make the audience question things because in the end they're not so dependent on the audience's approval to continue doing what they're doing right so something we talked about very briefly before we started recording is that many dancers choose to set up roots um, in, with one particular company throughout their careers. But for you, you have not done that. You have danced with numerous companies across Europe. So what is it that leads you to go from company to company? Um, a mixture of things. I mean, at the beginning of my career, it was uh, a curiosity to, to go to Europe. So I ended up going to Dresden. Um, and then after I was an apprentice in Dresden, I wasn't hired up into the course. So I, I had to do auditions and change companies. And then I, I joined a small neoclassical company in Marseille, um, which was a great experience because it was a very small company. Uh, I, I got opportunities to already start doing solo work and kind of build up my confidence and ability to be comfortable on stage doing a solo. But the the nature of how they work and how they rehearse in France was just not my taste because many people were on life contracts, which again was something I was not at all used to. I think in the U S 
dancers work very hard, but a, a good portion of that motivation comes from the fact that you never know if a company is going to have to do a major cut soon and you don't want to be, okay, they like you, but you're at the bottom of the list of priorities. So you always need to stay higher up in, in the company as far as how much they like you or how much they're willing to invest in you in case anything happens. But in France, when people have life contracts, it's, you know, they cannot fire them. Right. And people became very complacent in the company. And I, I was only 20 and I was in that atmosphere where there were a lot of people who were just, in, in my opinion, too settled, too comfortable and not too interested in the work they were doing. Mm -hmm. So I had been right before I started that season, I had been in Spain taking class at the summer intensive that, um, Angel Correa was putting on in Spain, when, in Segovia, when his company was still there. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he had asked me if I was available to do a supplemental contract for Swan Lake. And I said, Oh, I'd be really interested, but I already have a contract in, in France that I've signed and I'm going. And so then after a year in France, I was not happy. My director knew I was not happy. He could tell I wasn't very good at, um, covering up my face. <laughs> I would still do the work, but I wasn't uh -huh. very good when, at covering up Don't you up find my when you're young, that's really the case? I mean, I, I yeah. certainly thought that way. When you, you, you yeah. figure it out later, but yeah. when you're yeah. young, you're just like, this sucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he could see. So then, so I went and I did, um, I was like a supplemental dancer in Spain with Angel's company for, for Swan Lake and, um, while that was happening, I knew, okay, this isn't something permanent. So I decided I want to go back to Germany and audition there because when I was first in Germany in Dresden, I thought, oh my gosh, Germany is just like so rigid and there's so many rules to everything and people are just not flexible in their lives. And then I got to the south of France where it was the total opposite. And <laughs> it just every, too flex. every, yeah, everything was a hot mess. Like my visa, for example, I had to start work two weeks later than I was supposed to because my visa was sent to Los Angeles mm -hmm. because on my visa form, which the company sent in, it said Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I, of course, I put comma L.A. because, you know, you abbreviate yeah. the yeah. states, but the French didn't understand that. So they sent it to the consulate in California. Oh. And then when I went to I was supposed to be picking up my visa in the summer. Uh, from the consulate in Houston, they were like, we don't, we don't have anything for Shelby Williams. So everything was delayed. It was just like, that was the first sign, but everything in France was a little bit too relaxed, South of France, hot mess. <laughs> and so then I was like, oh, okay, I could use some, I could use some structure in my life. And so then I went back to Germany um, and I ended up getting a job in Mainz um, with, it's called like Ballet Mainz, Stadttheater Mainz. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, uh, about half an hour away from Frankfurt and at the time the director was Pascal Tuzo and he was uh, a dancer with William Forsyth for a very long time mm -hmm. and so he did a mixture he did a lot of his choreography that was a mixture of like neoclassical point work and then also more contemporary heavily influenced by William Forsyth and then he also brought in a lot of his ex-colleagues to do pieces for us um, and then plus other choreographers like Johan Inger or Ohad Naharin. And so it was, uh, it was a wonderful experience there for me. I learned a lot, a lot, um, and improved my contemporary dance in many ways. Uh, but also he had a big impact on, um, 
my expectations of myself because the dancers he hired were all very unique and you had very different body types, um, very different technical levels when it came to classical technique, very different levels when it came to contemporary. You had, you know, the, the, the neoclassical ballerinas in the company. You had the really modern dancers who had never been on point. And I even had a colleague who um, had been on the German national rhythmic gymnastics team. Wow. And then when she retired from rhythmic gymnastics at like 21 or 20, she went to do like a bachelor's in dance and then graduated. And then her first year when she was in, in her like early to mid twenties, she was an apprentice with the company and then she moved up into the company and she was, she's also a beautiful, beautiful dancer, but also so unique from the way she came into being a professional dancer. Um, and so just to have the variety of dancers in the company that were there and, um, he never put pressure on anyone to have a certain body type, to to look a certain way. It was really, you know, you bring as much of yourself to the table as you can. And if you didn't do that with confidence, that's when you had a problem. It was the people who second guessed him, themselves. He kind of lost interest and he was like, well, you don't you don't know what you are as an artist. But if you really went for things boldly, then then. Um, he, he like showed appreciation for it. So that's where I, it really shaped my idea of like dancers don't have to be cookie cutters. Like the more individual you are, the better. And because you look your best when you are yourself. Right. I'm wondering, do you, did you find it to be an advantage to have, um, you know, the inherent, uh, drive in American dancers, you know, that, like you said, there, there's a potential that, there may not be jobs that your job will disappear due to a lack of funding. Mm. Um, so, you know, we always have a little bit more of um, that sort of fire to keep us going. Yeah. And you, you know, maybe ha having a life contract can cause complacency in some dancers, but do you think that it was an advantage to you um, to your European directors? Did they respond well to that sort of uh, American attitude of just, you know, work, work, work? Definitely, definitely. Um, I think that's one of the most consistent comments I've gotten is that I've, I've never had negative comments about my work ethic. Mm -hmm. um, and anytime I've had some kind of, you know, review with my director, it's always one of the first things they say is they, they really love and appreciate um, my consistency in my work ethic. And it's something I, I definitely noticed in my apprentice year in Dresden, for example, that the other apprentice women were from, from different places. I had um, a couple of friends who were apprentices with me who were American who came from SAB, but then I also had people from Spain, from Germany, from, you know, a little bit all over. And I was shocked at sometimes how people worked thinking, you know, we're apprentices. We, we're, we're in the phase where we really have to prove ourselves or we won't get moved up into the core. And I was just baffled at, like, why, why are these people not pushing harder? Because, you know, no, nothing is guaranteed. Right. And it definitely helped in casting in my apprentice year. I think based on, you know, my my lines and things probably shouldn't. I mean, okay, I could do the court of ballet. But there were definitely probably other apprentice women who would have looked nicer in it. But they 
so a couple of them just didn't have the drive or like the determination to pick things up quickly. Um, so my determination to like, okay, I want to do it well, uh, really helped me in a couple instances where I got to go in for things that I initially wasn't cast to go in for simply because I learned them quickly. And that definitely came from my, uh, American mentality and, and the way we were taught in Houston that, you know, you have to always be ready. Always, you never know when something's going to happen and your big break could be when you jump into something. Right. And so, um, I would say definitely the, the American approach to how we work has helped me a lot through my career. Yeah. That's something we talk about a lot is how you can make yourself the most valuable dancer in the core or one of them by mm -hmm. just being on top of your stuff. Yeah. And like knowing all of the, you know, all of the parts or being able to jump into here and there. It just makes you, that's the kind of thing that's like job security because those are the yeah. kind of dancers they need for any emergency situation, you know? Yeah. 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 We want to take a moment to talk to you about our sponsor, Studio Headphones. Studio wants to revolutionize the way people see headphones, not just as a tech device, but also as an accessory. In the current headphone market, it seems that you can choose between one of two things, tech or style. But Studio is bridging that gap by bringing you high quality sound that matches the quality of even the highest rated headphones on the market with a fashionable and modern look for a fraction of the cost. Michael and I have both been loving our sleek, tray-style studio headphones. They are sleek and lightweight and have sound transparency that allows you to hear traffic and conversations around you, making these headphones perfect if you live in a busy city. The Bluetooth technology makes these headphones wonderful to use when you are warming up for class or performances so you won't get tangled up in wires. So don't wait. Start listening to Conversations on Dance today with studio headphones. We are happy to be able to offer our listeners 15% off any purchase when you use promo code DANCE at checkout. Go to studio.com, that's S-U-D-I-O.com, or click the link in the description of this episode on iTunes. Now, let's get back to it. So let's talk about your claim to fame. No, your dancing is your claim to fame, but <laughs> your newest project is Biscuit Ballerina on Instagram. Yeah. And if our listeners are not yet following you, we highly recommend clicking over and checking it out. But we on your website, you talk about the story behind the account, and it's so much more than just a fun and entertaining um, project for you. It stems from something much deeper. So what can you tell us about um, what you went through as a student that kind of inspired you to start this project? Um, so when I was a student in Houston, um, you know, it's, it's like anyone when you get to a professional school, you come from your small school. And uh, maybe you're the most talented or maybe at least you're kind of at the top of your class and then you, you get to a larger professional school and you're suddenly surrounded by all of these very talented people. And um, when I got into the school, it was a challenge, but it was fine. But it was actually more when I got into the junior company that I didn't feel like I could relate to the other girls in the junior company with me because for the most part, they were born with naturally beautiful legs and arches and flex more flexible than I was. And I'm very much an athletic dancer that um, I have good stamina and I have a jump and I can turn, but like, don't put me doing adagio. I'm not going to be <laughs> the, the girl you want to see doing adagio. Um, 
And so I was, there wasn't my year that I was in the, my two years that I was in the second company, there weren't so many other girls like that. They were mostly more on the, the, um, typical idea of what you think of a ballerina. And, um, I definitely struggled with that comparing myself to, to the girls around me in the junior company and just thinking I'm, I'm not good enough. And, you know, I'm, it, I have my limitations. I'm working hard. I would do things. I would, I would go in early in the morning and I would do an hour and a half of Pilates before class. And then I would do all of our rehearsals with the company and in our own second company rehearsals as well. And at the end of the day, go back in the body conditioning room and do Pilates again. Thinking, okay. I need a length in my muscles because I'm naturally muscular and, I have to, I have to improve my extension and my flexibility and do all of these exercises so that my extension can get as high as possible. And I didn't see significant change. You know, I, of course things improved, but there's also a certain amount that it's just the nature of your body. You can only reshape your body so much. And, um, that became a huge point of frustration for me. And then kind of the breaking point was one day we were doing, uh, adagio and, I was, yeah, I was in the middle of like doing a double pay devant, which is my nightmare. I hate double pay devant. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then I just started crying because I couldn't handle it anymore. I saw in the mirror, all the other girls in the junior company with me looking so much better than me. And I just, I just broke down and I started crying. And, and the teacher said like, you know, go out, go outside, get some water, get some air. You, like you don't have to finish class. And so I, I went outside, I got water and then um, the teacher obviously then spoke to the director of the school and said, you know, Shelby broke down crying, blah, blah, blah. And she had a discussion with me and in Houston, they have a, um, sports psychologist that they can refer people to if they're dealing with uh, anxiety or depression, which is fantastic because I don't yeah. think many schools have that. And so I went and, or companies. um, <laughs> yeah, or companies. Yeah. Also, yeah. Very necessary for, for people who are working as well. Yeah. Um, and so I went and I, I spoke to him. I did a couple sessions with him and, um, obviously in, when, when you're dealing with like the, how much you judge yourself, it's not going to be fixed in like three sessions with a sports psychologist, but it was definitely a starting point. And, um, he compared, ballet to golf which I think is a, a fantastic comparison and he said you know when you play the game of golf you don't play to score a hole in one you enjoy the challenge of trying to go for that perfection of making a hole in one but everyone knows like the hole in one might happen from time to time but it's not realistic to expect yourself to hit it every time and he's like it's it's the same with ballet you know you you know what the perfect perfect idea is and you aim for perfection but it's not really realistic. You're supposed to enjoy the the struggle or the process or like the challenge of trying to get there. And so then I started to understand that concept a little bit better. And I was, I started dealing with, you know, my own judgments of myself a bit better. But then when, when I felt like, okay, my own logic in my head couldn't help me overcome how I judged myself. I found that if I took whatever I just did wrong, so if I just did adagio and I felt like my legs were so low compared to everyone else, I would just do on my own joking, like the adagio again, but with my leg even lower, you know, like five inches off the floor and just say like, oh my gosh, 
like my legs feel so heavy today. I'm, I'm doing the adagio like, and then I would just do this horrible, horrible adagio. <laughs> and I found in general, then like my friends around me would laugh and I would be able to laugh. And then I could just blow off some steam and say, okay, you know, it, it, ha- you no one's perfect. It's fine. I can laugh at the fact that I can't really do this or if I fell or if there's a picture of me that didn't look good and I could tell friends about it, like, Oh God, I saw this picture of myself. Thank God it didn't end up anywhere. And I would imitate it and make it look even worse. And so this kind of exaggerating the things that bothered me helped me get over them. Right. So, so at what point did you take this sort of um, therapeutic, humorous idea, a way of working through um, any dancer's natural like anxieties or insecurities and turn it into um, its own platform on Instagram? When did that kind of uh, come together? Um, so we, uh, I always did it like throughout my career as well. It's something that just continued that anytime something was difficult, I would just do it. And if you ever talk to any of the people I ever worked with, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, Shelby did that all the time. (laughs) And, (laughs) and then it was just one day in rehearsal. Um, we had a five minute break, uh, here in Antwerp and there's a principal in the company drew that, uh, she just videotaped me as I was joking around doing because we were doing creation with Edward Locke, mm-hmm. um, who is he used to be the director of La La Human Steps until it closed. And it's a lot of very fast, uh, very intense, very sharp movement on point. And it's just exhausting for the legs and body. And so a lot of times you just don't feel good. You just feel like this must not look good. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then we had a five minute break and someone had some like their iPod playing with some random music and I was just like releasing some steam by dancing all biscuity and back on my feet because that's how I felt was that like I was doing all these things and I definitely wasn't getting over my shoes because it was moving so fast. I was just biscuiting through the whole thing Uh and she videotaped it and she shared it on her Instagram and I've never really been big into Instagram. I don't, I don't even have a phone that I can do video on. So (laughs) like she videotaped me she shared it on her instagram and then within like a day or so it had like twelve thousand views or something and and she she said like yeah you you know the the video i shared it's really popular and i was like maybe i should i don't know maybe i should make a thing of it and share it more because if, if other people find it funny maybe it's also another like i can it's a nice way to share like just you know, don't take ballet so seriously. It's fine if you joke around because people don't do that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so then I started, I was like, well, maybe I'll, I'll film a variation. And so I, I did, the first thing I did was, um, chai pa. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> and I, and I had, <laughs> because, because chai pa is also fat. So fast. It's one of those things that you feel like you must not hit a nice position throughout right. the whole thing. Unless, unless you're just very gifted. It just a lot of times you feel like I'm not hitting anything nice, but it's happening. And it has and those so, wonderful backwards hops uh, and arabesques. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the exactly. bane of many a ballerina's existence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so I just like, I filmed Chai Pa and by, I filmed, I mean, I asked a colleague like, oh, can, can you film me with your iPhone? Because I don't have an iPhone and please just email it to me. So I had a colleague film me doing chai pa and then she, yeah, she sent it to me via email and I like put it on a tablet I had and then I made an Instagram account for Biscuit Ballerina and then I just shared it. 
And it was, and then the next day I was like, okay, maybe I'll do like a key tree. I'll do, yeah, like the fiery key tree solo. And so uh-huh. then I, I started with these two and then I just put little clips of them bit by bit. And I didn't really, I, I didn't have any understanding of what's a lot of followers on Instagram or um, what's a lot of views or anything. And then after two weeks I had 3000 followers and then people started saying like, how, how is it possible that you have 3000 followers? Like one of the principal dancers in the company was like, I've been working on my Instagram for six years and I only have 800 followers. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, I don't know. I, and I was like, I don't know who these people are because I really thought it was only going to be my ex colleagues who would find it and follow it. Right. Um, and then overnight I got a thousand more followers and I didn't know why. And then, um, one of my colleagues sent me this point magazine link that apparently point magazine had just put out a little article online saying like, who is this dancer? She's putting out all these cringeworthy videos and we're loving it. And then, um, it was like from there, I, I was like, okay, I, maybe I need to take this a little bit more seriously. And you know, make sure people don't misunderstand it. And like, if it's going to spread so quickly, I I should find ways to make the point of it more apparent. It was funny because I don't know if this was towards the beginning. I think I found you around the time of that point uh, magazine article, but there was someone that I feel like commented and was like, this is terrible technique. And this dancer is so bad or something terrible. And like, you wrote something so nice back that was like, it's a joke. (laughs) Kidding. Like, how often do you get that response? Yeah, I I mean, no, not so much. Sometimes when I put up little close up videos of just point work, just (laughs) sometimes I do like from the calf down, you know, find relevance and things. Uh Um, Sometimes then I get still those comments of people not understanding that it's satire. Cause I think when I do the full body thing, sometimes it's so extra and over the top. Most people realize that it's satire, but sometimes when it's only the feet, actually the people who are most insulting, it's little preteens, like 11 year olds and 12 year olds telling me, Amazing. The, what are you doing on point? And they're they're so mean. And I, like, I had Janet one, won't I, let me on point yet. So why do you get to go on point? I had one little girl send me a direct message with a video. She took a selfie video of her sticking her tongue out of me at me and telling me I suck. <gasps> and I <laughs> and I was like, is this what, what kids have to deal with today? It this is that's so online bad. bullying. It's horrible. Oh. And so that's also when I put in some like anti bullying posts because. I was like, if if I'm putting up with this, I I wasn't hurt by it. I was just shocked. Right. I was like, wow, kids do this to each other. So then, so I kind of made it a point that if anyone's going to be judgmental online, I'm going to give them a really nice response and just make them feel silly, silly for not realizing it. Yeah. And 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 then especially when when people do put really rude comments, when kids don't realize it's satire and they do put rude comments. Um, Sometimes I would tell them in the beginning, like, check the link in my bio, and it had an explanation about it. But then after a while, I was like, these kids are too mean. And so then I started responding to them with things like, you don't talk to strangers that way. Like, I, w- I would be their mother, and I would I would leave them little lecture comments on, on Instagram. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. But it, so what about yeah. the positive response from Biscuit Ballerina has surprised you the most? Have there been any anyone who's reached out to you in particular that really touched you? Um, I mean, the, uh, the first person who wrote me that was 
I, w- I wasn't expecting, like I had kids start writing me first and I understood because it was in my teen years that I was most stressed and most judgmental of myself and, and anxious. Um, but then, um, there was a dancer from P and B who I'd never met, who reached out to me and wrote and said like, you know, this resonates so much with it. it's, um, Stephen Locke. And then he sent me a video of himself and he said, you know, I was really behind in my dancing and I never had turnout. And, you know, this really resonates with me, this never feeling good enough. And, um, that was really nice. Suddenly I realized like, okay, there's like, even people working, they, we don't talk about it because in, there's this company culture of it's, if you show that you're stressed, if you show that you're having a hard time with something, then you're just not strong enough to cope with the ballet world. You right. know? So, um, it was really nice to hear from another professional dancer that they also resonated with the feeling of never really feeling good enough and you got to find ways to, to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And, um, he sent me a video of that he put together himself of him doing like, a uh, fouettes and another one, like a coupe jeté menage uh-huh. <laughs> from when he was a child doing like a show when I don't, I don't know how old he was. And then again, when he was older doing some, um, nutcracker guesting, mm-hmm. And just side by side. And it was just the change was amazing. Mm-hmm. But also to see that, you know, he wasn't born with the facility and everything came easily. So then I decided, oh, I would love to share this. So I shared it. But then I, I twisted it with like the biscuit ballerina thing of saying, you know, look at this child prodigy, just a sign of, you know, what bad training can do to you. What a loss. <laughs> and And so then I liked from that, like it started with him. But then after that. I also shared, it was also when people were questioning, like, what's the point of this account and why are you making fun of people? And, um, then me saying like, no, I'm not, I'm making fun of myself. I, right. I'm, I'm not always looking good. I'm looking bad. And then I, I shared this picture from a production of Spartacus that we did last season. That was, uh, it's from Grigorovich and it's this big Moscow production and people from the Bolshoi came to set it and everything looked like big and Russian and amazing. And then there was this beautiful photo that came out of one of my colleagues in a jump and I'm right behind him. And it, we're, we're doing some kind of like parallel balance thing. And it, it's, it's like kind of a climactic moment and I was really in it. And so my, my, my little balance kind of turned into some sort of petite allegro thing that I guess I was like really off the floor. <laughs> and so then there's this picture of me just levitating with like bent knees and two biscuits <laughs> right underneath him. Like there's him jumping and then coming out the bottom of him are these two horrible legs and biscuits. And so then I shared it and I was like, this is, you know, this is me. This is, I don't look good all the time. Uh-huh. And then, and then that's when I created the, the hashtag professional biscuit challenge. And uh-huh. it was like, if, and I said, like, if, if you're a professional and, you know, we filter our social media so much and we make sure we, we present our best self because through Instagram, you can get bookings, you can get inquiries right. about collaborations. So, of course, you always want to make yourself look your best. But unfortunately, the result of that is that young kids, students or even other professionals just see these other dancers and think I am not up to that level like. They, they are just incredible all of the time. And that's not true. It's always a process to, to accomplish what you can. And, um, you know, even if you have an amazing solo, probably if you're doing a full ballet, not everything's going to be perfect. So, um, so then I created this hashtag and that's one of the things I've really loved about it is the number of professional dancers who have sent in 
photos or videos of them not looking their best to share and just say, you know, it's absolutely fine. You don't have to <laughs> expect yourself to be a machine. You you are human. I've had the pleasure of being featured on the Professional Biscuit Challenge. <laughs> and it's one of my favorite photos. And I've shared it like a lot of times. And I don't know if I told you this, Michael, but and I don't know, Shelby, if you saw it, but someone commented, was like, I feel so bad for her. <laughs> and I wrote back and I was like, don't, because I've ended up in a really great position afterwards. And there, I have a picture of like, right, like a half second afterwards. And I was like, in a real, and I was like, wow, I didn't even know I got to that position. But the going to the position was not so hot. But yeah, it just yeah. makes you like laugh and yeah. it just helps take the pressure off of it. I, I think it's great. Yeah, because it's so it's so important to be able to laugh at when things are going badly. Like even if it's it can be anything as simple as okay, a, a photo caught at the wrong moment or a photo caught when you forgot to think about shaping your foot and your foot looks bad, but I think to be able to if it's if it's something that evokes such a strong feeling in yourself to see something like that and you have to do something, I think in the end it's better to turn it into humor rather than to turn it into um depression or sadness or, or anger. Yeah. So it's the only way to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We are going to now segue into our final bit of questioning that we always okay. do our lightning round where we will ask you a series of short questions and you just answer the first thing that uh, you feel. So what's your favorite ballet? That I've, danced or that i just that i love yeah how about one of each sure that you you dance Um, to dance and to watch okay favorite favorite ballet that i've i've never danced but i love to watch is quintet by william forsyth Mm -hmm. and then um my probably favorite ballet i ever danced was um oh i don't know oh um okay uh cafe muller by pina bausch oh good choice um what is a dream role you have not yet danced um i would i would either love to uh to dance gamzadi in bayadere for like a classical ballet or anything by killian i've never danced a killian ballet wow that's so surprising yeah yeah i feel like i think all the companies i've been to they're like everyone's done killian so they don't do killian but right <laughs> i haven't done killian i want to i want to try <laughs> it's my turn <laughs> yeah <laughs> who who is your biggest comedic inspiration um that what is the uh celeste barber this this woman in australia who just like imitates all of these top models uh-huh. but she redoes them in like the worst way possible uh-huh. like in the, that just like life isn't actually that glamorous right i i love yeah, I'm a huge fan of her Instagram. And then also Ellen DeGeneres, just oh, in general. I love yeah. her show. I love her humor. Yeah, I love that. So where do you see Biscuit Ballerina in five years? Um, I would like, hopefully, to to be doing more speaking. Mm-hmm. Ideally to, to schools and things. Um, now, coming up in June, I'm, I'm going to Paris and I'm going to be giving a speech on um, perfectionism. And it's going to be kind of talking about finding happiness in the pursuit of perfection and not letting it become overwhelming. And I would like to kind of take public speaking into more, um, going to schools and talking to students about coping with 
the expectations of the dance world and, and your own expectations of yourself and how to remain happy and healthy in that pursuit, not just physically, but also mentally. I would, I would love for that to expand. I think that's so great. I mean, this came from something that was just silly and fun, but now you're finding ways to reach out and, you know, affect children and help them be happier dancers. I think that's just so admirable and we wish you all the best with that. Yes, thanks so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week. We are thrilled to announce that we will be working with San Francisco Ballet April 20th through 25th to cover their massive choreography festival called Unbound, a festival of new works. Unbound will feature 12 choreographers creating 12 world premieres on the dancers of San Francisco Ballet that will premiere over 17 days. We are so thrilled to be partnering with the company to bring this groundbreaking festival to you through Conversations on Dance. To make sure you don't miss a moment from San Francisco, follow us on Instagram and Facebook and subscribe to Conversations on Dance via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You won't want to miss this. Thank you for joining us today and we'll see you next week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.